Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our series, Walking Through the Book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be discussing Deuteronomy chapter 14, specifically verse 21 about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk and the tithe. We wanted to keep you aware of our upcoming regional course and our upcoming intensive course. Our regional course on how to sing the Psalms is going to be in Cary, North Carolina on August 18th and 19th. For more information on that regional class, there's a link down there in the show notes. And we especially wanted to keep you aware of our upcoming intensive course with Alistair Roberts on the book and theme of the Exodus. That intensive course is going to be September 18th through September 22nd. And in that course, we're going to explore the expansive role that the Exodus plays in the scriptures from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and in the continuing life of the people of God. And we hope that many of you will come and join us. For more information and to register, there's a link down there in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this conversation and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy 14. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out for you. We are missing James Bijan, who is a regular on our podcast. He's not uh, not feeling well today, so he's not been able to join us. Uh, we hope and pray that he'll be able to join us again uh, very soon. And uh, he said that he was uh, he was speaking in a in a kind of whispered croak, uh, and thought that that would not go over well on the podcast. So we wish him well and uh, hope that he can rejoin us in the next uh, next episodes. Uh, we are in the middle of a study of Deuteronomy, and we are coming toward the middle of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, last time we looked at the end of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a series of scenarios in which individuals or groups are enticing Israel away from worshiping and serving Yahweh to worship and serving the gods of the nations. Uh, and those those enticements, those in, uh, those uh, seducers are dealt with very severely. They're satanic characters who are trying to seduce uh, Yahweh's bride away from Yahweh. Uh, and so they are crushed as seducing serpents ought to be. We began chapter 14 also, and we looked at uh, some of the structural issues surrounding chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14, the section we looked at, verses 1 through 21, is concerned with, largely concerned with food laws. Uh, and uh, the rules of clean and unclean food. And we looked at how those are rooted back in Genesis 3, the curses also back to Genesis 2, where Adam is put under a food law. Israel's under these temporary food laws as Adam was until they reach majority. And then they're given a full menu uh, in, in the new covenant. Uh, we're going to begin today in uh, chapter 14, verse 21 or so. We'll talk about the uh, boiling kid in its mother's milk rule. But this section begins wherever we place that rule at the end of verse 21. This uh, this section of Deuteronomy begins at verse 22 with a, uh, rules about tithing, the uh, offerings offerings to the Lord, offerings to the Lord, and the bringing of the tithe to the sanctuary opens up into hospitality given to the Levite. So it's rules about bringing the Lord's portion of your produce to the Lord, but then when the Lord receives it, he immediately turns it back to Israelites, and they enjoy a feast in his presence. Uh, the Feast of Booths is in view here because it's at the end of the entire entire harvest that they're feasting. It's not just a, it's not just a grain harvest, but it's a grain and grape harvest, so that means they're, they're in the Feast of Booths or a Feast of Ingathering. That's when the tithe is brought to uh, Israel, and, and that tithe is not just honor to Yahweh, but it's also charity. It's it's used to support those who are in need in the community. Uh, and that that uh, uh, section about tithing uh, is the introduction to a couple of chapters uh, that have to do with the Sabbath. I think the tithing section uh, can be seen as part of the Sabbath rule. Certainly chapter 15, which uh, talks about the remission of debts in the, in the seventh year, uh, that comes under the Sabbath heading. The manumission of slaves, it also comes up in chapter 15. Again, is part of the Sabbath, uh, part of the Sabbath law. Sabbath is not just keeping the one day in seven, but it's about uh, a pattern of life that's structured by sevens, by patterns of seven, uh, sevenfold temporalities, 
but it's a pattern of life that uh, is broader than just keeping those ritual moments, but it has to do with acts of relief and acts of release and giving rest to those who are in distress. One of the things that I, uh, struck me as I was reading through this section is the, uh, the way that uh, Israel's economic life is being characterized in these chapters. And I thought of uh, Karl Polanyi's book, The Great Transformation. Karl Polanyi's book is a, is a well-known book that discusses the transition from pre-modern to modern economies in Europe, particularly in England. Uh, and one of the one of the things that he sees going on there is, uh, I think he calls it the great disembedding. And uh, he sees pre-modern economies as embedded within social and political institutions and practices and relations. So the uh, economic transactions didn't take place apart from and outside of relationships of family and friendship. So, you know, production, if if the household is productive, you've got a family farm, then you've got a social setting, a familial setting for economic production. That economic production is not the only or even the dominant feature of that business. The dominant feature is that it's a family. It's a productive family. And the economic part of it is just a uh, is an aspect of that activity. Uh, if you're thinking in, you know, most economic life is in uh, pre-modern societies, takes place in smaller scales. You don't have Amazon. You can't buy goods from a distance, not many goods from a distance. And so the people you're interacting with in the so-called economy are all the people that you're going to church with, people that you meet on the street. They're friends of yours. Uh, your baker and blacksmith is somebody that you interact with in in social occasions. And so the economic transactions that you have with these people are embedded or embedded within social life, or they're just one aspect of the various social exchanges that you have. Uh, and it, it does seem like Israel's economy is uh, being described in these chapters, Deuteronomy 14 and 15, as having that kind of embeddedness. And I'd see that in a couple of ways. One is uh, that there's a kind of liturgical embeddedness to Israel's economic life. Uh, Israel produces things from the land. That's a gift of Yahweh. Uh, and then to honor Yahweh, who gave them these gifts, they take the tithes to his house, to the place that he's chosen, uh, and they present them before Yahweh. So their production is overshadowed by this liturgical requirement that they bring their, their tithes to the Lord. Their consumption, they consume the tithes in the presence of the Lord at, at a festival. Uh, if they are too far from the uh, central sanctuary, then they can trade their goods for money and carry the money to the central sanctuary and buy what they are going to feast on at the central sanctuary. So monetary transactions are embedded within this liturgical life. And the the timing of things, the timing of presentation of harvesting and the time of consuming the tithe, that's determined by the by the, the festival calendar of Israel. So uh, the the economic life of Israel is, at least in part, it's embedded in this liturgical calendar. It's tuned to the liturgical calendar. Of course, the liturgical calendar is tuned to the agricultural cycle. So there's a kind of, the two cycles reinforce each other, but there's this liturgical framing of economic life. And then when we get to chapter 15, there's a kind of social framing. So chapter 15 talks about the relations of creditors and debtors. That's a kind of economic relation. But in Israel, that economic relation, you as a creditor and somebody who's borrowed from you as a debtor, that economic relation is not the only form of the relation. That's not abstracted from the fact that you're both part of Israel. Deuteronomy 15 talks about the creditor and the debtor as brothers of each other and neighbors, and they're to treat each other as such, and the creditor especially. The creditor especially is supposed to use, uh, is supposed to treat his uh, indebted brother, his debtor, as a brother. So that's a, another another example. That's a social kind of indebtedness. And the same thing is true when we get to the, the slavery laws later on in chapter 15. Uh, if you have a slave who is a brother, then you can't keep him in a, as a permanent slave unless he wants to stay as a permanent slave. Uh, you, can't, you can't own him. He can become part of your household uh, if he chooses to do so. But that relation of master and servant is also kind of set within the, the, this framework of being members of Israel. So those are just some hints of that. What I think is a, does, it does match the kind of thing that, uh, that Polanyi is describing in, in his book. Uh, and that's a, that's a different sort of economic life than uh, you would have in Egypt, certainly where Pharaoh owns everything. 
uh, it's a different kind of economic life than we have in our modern economies where much of our economic economic life is uh, impersonal. Uh, we exchange goods and per- services with people that we don't know by and large. We live in larger cities and uh, you know we don't have a personal relationship with the baker. We might we might have a close enough relationship with the the barista at the at the Starbucks that we that we say hello and we know him by name and we can have a little uh, superficial conversation when we go in to get our morning coffee. But by and large, we don't have these kind of deep relations with the people that we interact with. And much of our commerce today, of course, takes place over long distances. I rarely go into bookstores anymore because I can get most of the books I'm looking for online uh, and find good prices and I can shop without ever dealing with a person. That's not the kind of economy that Israel and uh, that's envisioned in the Israelite economy. Just a, a feature of the economy that stood out in these chapters that distinguishes ancient Israelite economy from our from our economy today. And that introduction, Peter, may uh, get us to the end of 21, because at the very least here, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, is you can't uh, treat this young goat as a meal and ignore the relationship, the relations between the mother and the goat. So there's something here just about taking care, at least at the very least, taking care to respect the relationship of a mother to its child and not just using using either for your own benefit. There's something almost um, sacred there between a mother and child that you should not violate. Now, that's there's going to be more to that. I'm kind of anxious to hear what you guys say. But it seems to me that at least that's there. The other thing I'd say about the transition here between first part of 14, second part of 14 is first part of 14 is don't eat these things. You fast from all these things. But right there in verse 22, uh, 23. Now, these these are the things you're. this is what you're supposed to do. This is the eating you're supposed to do. This is the feasting and the the, the suppers and the dinners you're supposed to have. So. Even though you're moving from, I think this is right, into the fourth word, there's a connection here between not eating and eating. Yeah, that's a good observation on the the uh, kid law that um, it's it's not just boiling kid in milk. That's not what's being prohibited. It's not serving meat with a milk product. You, it, uh, this law doesn't prohibit pepperoni pizza, for example. Um, it's boiling the kid in its mother's milk. That's a specific thing, which is highlighting, as you said, that relationship. And Alistair brought this up in the last episode, uh, which I think is also right, that you have a uh, perverse mixture of life and death. The the um, the mother's milk is supposed to be the source of the kid's life. And then you turn that uh, source of the kid's life into uh, something that that uh, maybe doesn't kill it, but uh, but it's cooked in there and it, it it's a mixture of life and death that's uh, that's perverse there are several points within deuteronomy and also elsewhere where we have symbolic commandments and it seems that this is such a commandment although it would be literally applied as well um it seems to carry an import beyond merely um prohibiting a single act it's helping us to think through larger principles. So, for instance, when the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians can refer back to the law concerning muzzling the ox um, and relate it to the paying of Christian ministers, he's recognizing the symbolic purpose of many laws. And we see something similar in the law concerning the woman who grabs the assailant of her husband by the genitals and then has her arm cut off. This is a fairly niche situation. It's not something that happens every single day, but there seems to be something more going on that um, we're supposed to reflect upon, to see that maybe as a commentary upon some story elsewhere, or maybe a revelation of some principle that can be applied in other contexts. And so several of the commandments have these introductory um, or bookending principles um, that are expressed in a sort of symbolic case law. Maybe think also of the 
not muzzling the ox that treads out the grain or um, the unequal yoking of um, creatures. All of these are examples of symbolic law. Now, this particular one is fascinating because of its placement elsewhere, where it seems to be at the very culmination of um, covenant material. So in chapter 23 of Exodus, it occurs just at the end of the case laws, just in the verse be prior to the um, statement of the conquest of Canaan. And then in chapter 34, in the recapitulation of the covenant, covenant laws, it um, is, again, the final of the laws. So for whatever interpretation we come up with of this, it can't simply be a miscellaneous um, regulation. There seems to be something more indicated, and the very placement of the law would suggest that there is some great import here. Now, Jim Jordan has pointed to the similarity or the conceptual similarity between this law and scenes in the historical books and some in prophetic books of women who are actually boiling their children. So the the argument would be that the kid represents a child, the mother goat or the mother sheep uh, is the mother, and uh, a mother is supposed to nurture and care for and give life to her child uh, and not to consume the child. Uh, and But we have several passages where in, when Israel is in distress, you have women who cook and eat their children. When when Jerusalem is under siege, for example, in Second Kings, a woman cooks and eats her children. Um, and then there's a dispute about uh, about whose child was eaten, and uh, the two women want to each have the have the child to eat, uh, have the other child to eat. So there's a it's it's clearly applying to that kind of scenario where you have a person who's designated to be a, a caretaker and a nourisher and a giver of life who instead brings death. Jim also points to the kind of the New Testament fulfillment of this. If you think of the Torah as as a kind of milk, as a kind of nourishment, the pure milk of the word, as Peter talks about, to when the, the Pharisees and scribes and the priests use Torah in order to destroy Jesus when the leaders of Jerusalem, the mother city, uh, uses the Torah to boil Jesus as the kid, that's a kind of uh, New Testament culmination of that. So it can be uh, it can be not only just in, not not just ingesting, like the women who are eating their own children, but it's consuming in a more abstract uh, metaphorical sense, and using something that's intended to give life, like the Torah, in order to bring that death. Jesus accuses the the Pharisees of using the law, which is intended to bring life, as a club to beat people with, and they do that exact same thing to him. So he's he's the kid boiled in his mother's milk. So you can also point out then in uh, Exodus twenty three nineteen the passage that you already highlighted, Alistair, the kid law comes right after this. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of Yahweh your God. So there's a connection between the the bringing of first fruits. And then the next law is you shall not boil a kid in the milk of its mother. Uh, in the case of uh, Deuteronomy 14, the boiling of the kid is right after a, a bunch of food laws, so it, it seems to be associated with them. Uh, but given Exodus 23, it also seems to be associated with what's happening in the following verses, which have to do with the tithe. Uh, and in that case, again, uh, Jim has done a lot of work on this, that is to say Jim Jordan. Uh, and he's suggested a kind of analogy between the tithe and and children, the tithe is what we produce. It's what the land has brought forth. The fruit of the womb and the fruit of the land are paralleled in various places in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the in the Old Testament. Uh, so, you, if you consume the fruit of the land, uh, boiling the kid in his mother's milk, that's analogous to taking the tithe, which belongs to Yahweh, and consuming the tithe. The tithe is like our children, and it's like eating the children that, that don't belong to us, children that belong to God, first of all. The tithe is a kind of desanctifying action. So you have you have the full produce of the land. It all belongs to Yahweh uh, because it's his land, but you give 10%, and that desanctifies the rest. If you consume that 10%, it's uh, analogous to uh, consuming a mother consuming her child uh, before he's grown before the child is offered to his father. 
So because most people probably don't have access to Jim's book, The Law of the Covenant, Jim Jordan's book, The Law of the Covenant, let me just read a section from that, his conclusion. He has a couple pages where he uh, uh, notes a lot of different connections, but probably beneficial just to hear this. He says, we're now in a better position to understand this law and its placement in a passage having to do with offerings to God. As uh, my comment, just as Peter connected this with the uh, the uh, the conclusion of Deuteronomy 14 and ties. The bride offers children to her husband, continuing with Jim. She bears them, rears them on her milk, and presents them to her Lord as her gift to him. Similarly, Israel is to present the fruits of her hands, including her children, to her divine husband. She is not to consume her children, her offerings, or her tithes, but present them to God. The command not to boil a kid in its own mother's milk is a negative command, the positive injunction, it implies that we are to present our children and our works, the work of our hands, to God. Jerusalem is the mother of the seed, Psalm 87, Galatians 4. When Jerusalem crucified Jesus Christ, her seed, she was boiling her kid in her own milk. In Revelation 17, the apostate Jerusalem has been devouring her faithful children. Quote, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, unquote. Her punishment under the law of equivalence is to be devoured by the Gentile kings who supported her. I think that's a good summary of everything you and Alistair just said, Peter. Yeah, it's a great summary because it's where I got everything I was saying. <laughs> Jim deals with this also in his uh, uh, as yet un unpublished um Essays on fruit, uh, food and faith. He he published them in a certain form through Biblical Horizons years ago, but we haven't gotten those into a form where they're in book form. Uh, I don't think any of them are on the app yet, but uh, we intend to have some of those on the app. They may be in the uh, uh, Logos James Jordan collection that uh, you can get as a Logos plugin. Uh, but he's got a lengthy discussion and a later discussion than the one in the Law of the Covenant on on this law. As you're, as you're reading that, Jeff, I also think. Uh, of things like, you know, just kind of family dynamics where you have consuming mothers, or you could have consuming fathers who, instead of your point about uh, offering our children with our works to God and our works to God, instead of consuming them ourselves or treating them as our own. But you have families where parents have unfulfilled dreams. Uh, mothers have attachment issues from their, from their family of upbringing. And they try to resolve those attachment attachment issues by uh, having unnaturally close relationship with children, hovering relationships with children. It seems like that kind of family dynamic is a kind of it's a an analogous application of this. It's like they're uh, they're supposed to be giving life to their children so their children can grow and be full adults, and instead they're it's like they're consuming them before they're able to get to get to that adulthood. Those family dynamics are maybe also an invitation to consider some of the ways that this might be reflecting upon narrative within Scripture. At several points in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere, I think there are symbolic case laws or um, laws more generally that we can read back into the narrative, particularly of Genesis, and reflect upon certain dynamics in the light of them. Um, there are several points, for instance, where an ox is left in the keeping of some party and they are responsible for some ill that might have befallen that creature. And Rabbi David Foreman suggests that this might in part be a reflection upon the story of Joseph and the way in which the different fates that were supposedly um, that occurred to him, whether he was killed, torn, by some wild creature, whether he was sold um, wrongfully or whether he was stolen, um, all of these different fates and whether he fell into a pit, all of these are dealt with in ways that invite us to go back and to read that story in terms of that. Now, he also suggests that the story of Joseph could be fruitfully read in terms of this law about boiling the young goat in its mother's milk. And of course, Goats are important within Genesis 37 and 38. You have the two goats. You have the goat that is um, the means by which Joseph's death is faked. 
the blood of the goat upon the um the garment and then the next chapter the goat that is the abortive um means by which the woman at any will be paid for her sexual services by judah and one of the things that he observes here is the way that the whole dynamic plays out in terms of the relationship between rachel and jacob and it's Joseph that becomes the object of the brother's hatred, but chiefly because of his mother and the love that there is between his Joseph's mother and their father, and consequently, or related, the lack of love between their mother or between Jacob and their mother. And so they take out that rivalry upon Joseph, who's the object of um, hatred because of his mother's relationship with his father. And as that story develops, we can see also that the story of Rachel is very clearly in the background throughout. Rachel is the the um, figure whose story is coming back to haunt. The um, camels coming down from Mount Gilead, um, recalling the pursuit of Laban and the covenant made there, and then the investigation of the um, the tent and um, Rachel sitting upon the camel and hiding the teraphim within the saddlebag. All of this is the connection between the kid and its mother. And the connection between the kid and its mother, he suggests, goes further in the emphasis that Joseph places upon the not coming to see him again without bringing, um, don't see my face empty-handed if Benjamin isn't with you. And so the calling to bring Benjamin to his presence is very similar to the calling to bring the firstborn fruits, the first fruits to the temple. And it seems to me that's a suggestive um, selection of possible connotations and um, connections that might be worth reflecting and um, looking deeper into. Because more generally, I think in scripture, we have these symbolic case laws and also a lot of the um, sacrificial laws are reflections in part upon narratives. I already mentioned that uh, the tithe laws that are given in verses 22 through 27 in particular, uh, this is uh, a mechanism for desanctification. By that, I mean that you have goods that are, to have something sanctified or holy means that they belong to Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord of the land. Strictly speaking, anything the land produces belongs to him. It's holy in order for Israel to make use of any of the produce of the land. They need to desanctify it. And the, the, the means that they use to desanctify it, to move it from a stat, status of holy to a status of common, from God's stuff that Yahweh has exclusive right to, to stuff that Yahweh shares with them. In order to do that, you bring the tithe. Now, the tithe is, the tithe is a tenth of the produce. Uh, what's in view here is uh, vegetable produce, uh, ver- particularly verse 22 talks about the produce from what you sow. Um, the s- things that are listed in uh, verse 23 are grain, new wine, and oil. And then when it talks about animals, it's a different category. It's not the tithe, but it's the firstborn of herd and flock. Those are all brought to Yahweh. I alluded to this before, but I think it's worth emphasizing again, the fact that these are tithes that are brought before the God of the land as a means of homage, but this means of homage to the, to the Lord of the land is uh, shared with those who bring it. So um, not only does Israel enjoy the 90% that the Lord gives them, uh, shares with them uh, apart from the tithe, but even the tithe itself, they bring it to the place that the Lord chooses Um they bring a tithe of their grain, and then they eat that grain during the seven days of the Feast of Booths. They drink from that wine. They have that oil, and then they bring their firstborn, with, which belong to Yahweh, but then those firstborn are shared with them as peace offerings. Uh, and so uh, Yahweh, instead of just receiving this these goods, uh, or even the priests, instead of receiving the goods and storing them in some priestly storehouse, Yahweh is given homage in order to share it. Uh, he doesn't just he doesn't just suck all the wealth of Israel to himself. Anything that's brought to him is also shared. Uh, one of the commentators I read also pointed out that uh, it's unlikely that Israel would have been able to consume a full 
tithe of their produce for an entire year in the course of that week. So they're bringing a tithe of their grain. That's probably more than they can eat in a week. Uh, perhaps, you know, they're sharing it with widows and orphans from their town. They're sharing it with Levites. Perhaps, perhaps that would, uh, uh, it would just sustain a week's long, a week's, uh, uh, a week's uh, festival, but there's probably excess and that excess presumably belongs to the priests. So the priests are getting a portion of it. And we find in, in else in other places where the uh, rules of uh, tithing are, are, are brought up that the priests are given a portion of the tithe. But here the, the emphasis is on the tithe being brought to Yahweh and Yahweh immediately sharing. And then the priests just getting whatever might be left over from that festival, that, uh, that festival of the tithe. Yeah. Notice at the end of verse 23, that you may learn to fear Yahweh, your God, always. There's a pedagogy here. There's an educational kind of purpose for all this. And I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of us when you read this, you might think, well, in order to learn to fear Yahweh, um, you're going to be deprived of something. He's going to take something from you to make you fear him. Uh, he's going to uh, make you do something that's really difficult and hard uh, to remind you that he's, you know, the big God who uh, pounds his nails or whatever. Uh, but in fact, here, you're learning to fear God by eating of your grain and your wine and your oil, by eating before Yahweh, your God, and rejoicing you and your household. So, and this is something I know at Theopolis we've emphasized over and over again, I try to do this at church too, is that proper feasting produces the appropriate fear of, of God uh, and a recognition that all these gifts are from the Lord, not from the fertility gods of the Canaanites or not from the marketplace, uh, if we think of the American kind of idolatry towards the market as if it somehow has some kind of magical powers and has a will to give people certain things when they do, when they perform in the, in the right way. Um, so this is really kind of surprising, I think, to people. Uh, and of course, the church also has often thought that the way to inculcate the fear of God is to deprive people of things or, or to get people to give up certain things, deprive themselves of things. There's a certain obvious place for fasting, uh, especially when you're petitioning God for something and you're praying. That's certainly appropriate. But here, the way to learn how to fear the Lord your God is to, to feast with him. Uh, and even the tithe is never meant to be a burden on anybody. It's designed to uh, it, it, it it's designed to to inculcate a community of joyful happy people. I think sometimes the church needs to needs to not worry so much about how they spend the tithe, especially we, we get this occasionally in our church where people say, well, uh, we need to, we need to spend the tithe on things outside of the church, not on ourselves, you know, not on eating nice things, not on having pizza dinners or anything, you know, let's, let's send it to missionaries. And of course that's appropriate, no doubt about that. But at the same time, uh, for people to bring their tithe, which we do every Sunday. Of course, when we when we process down the aisle with the bread and the wine and with the tithe that we just received, uh, we're bringing it to the Lord. And then it's certainly appropriate for us to use some of that to rejoice before him with the family of God in, in, in the various feasts of the church. Um, that seems to me like a legitimate application of Deuteronomy 14. Yeah, it's it, it reminds me of Babette's, Babette's fees. She uh, re, she wins the lottery and then spends the entire lottery winnings on uh, on hosting uh, a feast for people who don't appreciate the feast, but uh, they find the feast a transformative experience. I, I mentioned this at the beginning that the kind of economics that are in that are implied by all this, and I'd want to reiterate, reiterate uh, that and and highlight a couple of things. Uh, that come out of this. One of them is the verse 24 talks about the way, if the way is too great, you're not able to bring the tithe. Again, that's a function of the centralization of the sanctuary. The Lord is going to choose a place where he's going to, his name is going to dwell. That's the place where Israel is going to bring their sacrifice. 
That's the place where Israel is going to bring their tithes. They're going to have their, all their festivals there, which means they're now at a distance from Yahweh's house. They're living up north in Dan or down south near Beersheba, um, or they're in the Transjordan. The selection of a central sanctuary creates this distance. And uh, that's part of, as we talked about this a few weeks ago, that's part of the maturation of Israel. Israel is Yahweh's son. Chapter 14 begins, you are sons of Yahweh your God. But once they go into the land, uh, Yahweh is sending them out of the house. They're not right there in the camp with Yahweh the way they were in the wilderness. Now they scatter out to the to the various uh, corners of the land, uh, and they're living at a distance, which means that coming to the Lord's house creates this need for uh, a pilgrimage. And that, in turn, creates a, a need, or at least an option, for money. Money is mentioned elsewhere in Deuteronomy, but uh, within Israel's own economy, this is the first time, I think the first time it comes up in this kind of setting, Israel is distant. What makes money need, uh, necessary is that Israel is too far, Israelites are too far from the central sanctuary to transport the tithe of their grain, new wine, and oil. It's just too much for them to carry. Uh, if they bring a, a firstborn of their herd or their flock to the central sanctuary, they, they're likely to blemish it on the way. Uh, they risk that at least. So it's much safer and easier, more convenient to exchange it for silver, and then you take the silver down. But money becomes embedded within this this relationship to worship, for one thing. But it's also a function of Israel uh, Israel leaving home. Uh, when when they were in the camp in the wilderness, if they were going to have a festival in the wilderness, they just brought their animals. Uh, if they brought their ties, they brought them in kind to the central sanctuary and enjoyed the festival of, of booze there. They didn't have to exchange anything for money. So it's like as as Israel moves out of Yahweh's house, he kind of moves them into a money economy, an economy where exchanges of goods for silver is useful, and there's a there's a proper utilitarian thing. So the idea of a money economy is kind of incorporated into Israel's life, incorporated into the liturgical life of Israel. The other thing that's incorporated into the liturgical life is basic desires for food and drink and, and good things to eat. There's an emphasis on verse 26 on uh, the things that you desire. Once you have exchanged your goods for money, then you bring that money to the central sanctuary. There's going to be oxen and sheep uh, for sale. There's going to be wine and strong drink and other things for sale, and you can spend it on whatever your heart desires. So the money becomes a, a means for fulfilling desires, the desires of your soul. And the Deuteronomy doesn't treat that at all as some kind of weird anomaly or a bad thing, that there's, uh, you know, money is introduced and that corrupts everything. It's wrong for Israel to have desires of soul that they're trying to that they're trying to uh, they're trying to satisfy by purchasing things. Of course, the Bible gives warnings about finding our ultimate satisfaction in things that we can purchase. But Deuteronomy is very very down to earth and recognizes that we have desires of soul. In this case, they're desires for food and drink, and that's a perfectly legitimate desire, and it's a perfectly legitimate uh, economic act to use money to satisfy those desires. So there's a lot of aspects of Israel's economic life that I think are concentrated in these couple of chapters. And then the chapter ends with uh, these, this emphasis on the extension of the hospitality that Israel receives to those who need hospitality. So in the context of the original tithe rule, uh, don't neglect the Levite who is in your gates. He has no portion or inheritance among you. He needs to be included. So uh, when you're having a festival with your household, uh, your sons and your daughters, your wife and your servants that are in your household, those are all included in the household. And you extend that uh, to the Levite. Uh, you freely receive the hospitality of Yahweh and you give the hospitality of Yahweh. That's the, that's the dynamic. Uh, so the, the prosperity that uh, the landowners and the farmers are enjoying is extended to those who don't have uh, don't have uh, goods of their own or land of their own. This whole economy that's being portrayed is underwritten by productivity. It's an economy of charity and hospitality. Not only the Levite, but in the next few next couple of verses, there's orphans and widows and aliens that are mentioned in verse 29. Uh, it's a, it's an economy of charity. Uh, it's an economy of festivity. Uh, but all of that depends on the blessing of Yahweh. If if Yahweh doesn't bless. 
and uh, make the land productive, then they have no tithes to bring, and therefore they don't have the feasts. Uh, if the land isn't productive, they don't have enough of a tithe to bring and to share with the Levite and the alien orphan and the widow. Uh, so those those acts of charity and that extension of hospitality all depends on a kind of supply side element that the Lord is blessing them. And the Lord blesses them because they're obeying these commandments. So there's this kind of virtuous cycle. The Lord blesses if Israel uses those blessings in the way that the Lord commands, that is by giving tithes and by extending gifts to the Levite, the alien, the orphan, the widow, then the Lord is going to bless yet again. And that means they'll have even more so that they can enjoy festivity even more and they can share even more. So um, again, that this, uh, this, this whole economic portrait is underwritten by the presumption uh, of a productive land, productive labor, uh, which all comes ultimately from the blessing of Yahweh. And all of this makes a lot more sense when we read it in correspondence with the fourth commandment, that this is what it looks like in part to give thanks for the Lord's release, for the fact that he has granted his people Sabbath, and also to share it with others in turn. Um, the enjoyment of feasting and the um, generous celebration of that feasting with others is a means by which it's ensured that the Sabbath is for everyone, that it's recognized that the liberty into which the Lord brought his people is perpetuated within its ongoing life. Later on, we'll have further material concerning um, tithe feasts in chapter 26, where it's related to the 10th commandment and the practices of generosity, thanksgiving and contentment are means to avoid the covetousness and the desire for what belongs to others that um, is prohibited within the 10th commandment. But here it's very clearly something that falls under the Sabbath principle. And the Sabbath principle really continues into chapter 15. It's a society where people who have received rest and celebrate that rest, give that rest to others in turn, and ensure that no one is brought into the state of bondage again, from which they have been freed. Um, but always there is this hope and promise of rest, and this concern that people enjoy the good gifts that God has given his people. That is an aspect of the Sabbath commandment that we see in several places, whether it's in the laws connected with gleaning, when we have the um, Feast of Weeks in Leviticus chapter 23, the ensure, ensuring that at the time of harvest, everyone has some title and enjoyment to the fruit of the land, uh, whether it is these events of tithe feasts or whether it's um, other occasions of feasts, for instance, around the time of tabernacles. In each of these contexts, the concern is the fundamental Sabbath concern, the Sabbath being the commandment that in many ways sums up the entire covenant, as we see in places like Exodus 31. That's a great point. The only thing I'd add is that we remember that the Sabbath law, the fourth word, uh, begins with six days you shall work. So Peter's comment about the uh, this presupposes the productivity of people. Yeah, uh, the people have to work six days. Uh, and when they do work and follow uh, the Lord's commandments, all these commandments, um, then he will bless them with uh, the uh, the fruits of their work, which is then offered with the tithe and then enjoyed uh, as they cease from their labor on these Sabbath opportunities and feast with people. But the importance of work here uh, can sometimes go unnoticed um, that they do have they have agency. Uh, and if if they don't work, then they won't eat, as Paul says. I want to raise one last thing uh, at the end of chapter 14, um, verses 20, 22 through 27 are about the tithe that's brought to the place that the Lord chooses, uh, and that is an annual thing. Verse 22 indicates uh, what comes out of your field every year. But then verse 28 uh, has, again, a tithe law. Uh, every third year, you shall bring out of all the tithe of your produce in that year. Again, this is produce from the land. This is vegetable produce. For the third year, it's not taken to the central sanctuary. It's not taken to uh, the place the Lord chooses. 
but it's put in your gates uh, in the town. So this is a this is a tithe that's gathered uh, and then distributed apparently locally. So the orphan, uh, the, the Levites, uh, the alien orphan widow, which are listed in verse twenty nine, are there in your gates, and they come and are satisfied uh, and uh, by the by that tithe. There's some dispute about whether that's an additional tithe. So every third third year you do a a twenty percent tithe, ten percent you take to the sanctuary and you offer it, ten percent you leave in your gates. Uh, I'm inclined to think that it's uh, a substitute. So every third year, uh, Israel um, uh, Israel deposits their tithe, ten percent of their income in a local area, with somebody who's managing it locally. And it's there for the for the disadvantaged to receive and to uh, and to enjoy. There are other kinds of uh, rules that will come to in Deuteronomy. There's some in Leviticus as well that cover other provisions for the orphans and the widows and aliens. But one of the provisions is that you have kind of a it's it's kind of like Joseph's famine program where he's gathering up all the grain for the lean years and then distributing them. Uh, uh, during the years of abundance and then distributing them during the lean years. Every town has this kind of storehouse like that. uh, And it's there in order to be distributed to the alien orphan, the widow. And this is, this is just part of the part of the way that Israel uh, cares for members of the community, aliens, orphans, and widows, orphans and widows particularly are part of Israel. Aliens may be Gentiles, but they're treated, they're to be treated with favor uh, and treated with kindness and they're supposed to enjoy the abundance of the land. So if Israel prospers and the Lord blesses Israel, then the people who don't have land and who are disadvantaged in some way also prosper. And this is one of the mechanisms uh, for that prosperity. So uh, the, the the idea that the tithe, uh, in this case at least, the tithe looks like it's not even brought to the, to the central sanctuary. It's not brought as an act of worship, but every third year it's deposited just as a uh, kind of a poor relief fund, uh, a bread, uh, you know, a, a food, a food bank for those who need it. I wonder if this provision of a food bank would also be a way, a way by which Israel was able to secure itself in situations of famine without rejo- engaging in the sort of centralization and the statism that we have in um, Joseph's Egypt. Yeah, that's a great point because you would have people who are temporarily deprived if there is a bad harvest, uh, temporarily deprived if they get invaded. You might have an increase, a a steep increase in the number of orphans and widows if there's a war. And then uh, you have this food bank that's available that's uh, supplying them. Yeah, it would would cover. We think of, you know, I think I, I think of orphans and widows kind of a static. Quantity, but obviously that's not. And you'd have uh, you'd have the numbers of orphans and widows, the number of those who are in need, varying according to circumstance. I think that something needs to be emphasized here is that the welfare, uh, genuine welfare, happens at the the city level, the town level, the local community, which means it's it's very relation. It's relational. It's you know these people, you know who's coming in. I'm thinking about. You know, Naomi and Ruth coming back from Moab, and th- although this is gleaning, it's a similar kind of principle where Boaz basically pre-qualifies them for, for gleaning because he knows who they are and he hears from others uh, how how good Ruth has been to her mother-in-law, Naomi, things like that you, th- w- that you don't get when you have a statist kind of run, uh, you know, redistribution of wealth, impersonal um this is this is something that would be that would emphasize community and responsibility uh, i mentioned earlier about you know paul's comment if someone won't work then he shouldn't eat well that applies to people who can work and who have the wherewithal to do that physically or, or whatever who haven't been uh, made destitute by uh certain circumstances in their life but here here you have apparently all of them um, sitting at tables together. Um, and this is something that's missing in the modern world is we don't have any kind of local kind of dispute. Even the food bank here in our town 
is relatively impersonal and it, it, it's hard to implement something personal in a, especially in a suburban kind of situation, but effective welfare surely to me should be personal and communal and not just an economic distribution of funds. Uh, and that seems to be here what is the kind of the kind of society that these laws and regulations are creating is something we probably have a hard time even envisioning. John Milbank says somewhere that the um, biblical model of charity is a shared meal. Certainly, the case in the first that first tithe law in uh, Deuteronomy fourteen is going to be the case in chapter sixteen when we get to the different festivals. That's it's not that you throw money or goods to an impersonal somebody at a distance, but rather you're you have food. You have somebody sitting next to you who doesn't have his own source of food, and you're sharing the meal together rather than, again, just supplying supplying aid. Uh, and, and that does seem to be the picture in Deuteronomy, largely that it's uh, it's local, it's personal, and it's festive. Festivity and charity are not set at odds with each other. You know, the the idea that uh, a church, for example, that places a lot of emphasis on common meals and festivity, things you were talking about before, Jeff. Uh, that you're spending money on common meals and 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 feasts at your church that somehow at at the expense of charity. No, those biblically speaking, those are moments when charity. That's that's when you enact charity. That's the that's the setting for proper charity. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.